we are going to get right into the text. We're going to read the scripture for today and then open up in prayer. Uh, just, just a word for you. Um, Pastor James said last week that we were going to start John chapter 2 this week. Uh, he was a little sickly last week. He's more sickly this week. Um, so he's at home, called me this morning, sounded awful. Uh, so he's, he's not here. To, so please pray for him. Please pray for him. Uh, he's at home, um, maybe watching. <laughs> this is what you get <laughs> for being sick. Should have toughed it out. Yeah, but please pray for him in all seriousness. Um, Yeah, let's read the text. This is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Something, though, I'm going to be a little off the cuff today, so ain't no telling what I'm going to say. But I will say, you know, when things are, you know, we have have certain plans, you know, we're coming in ready to hear about the first miracle in, in the book of John, are ready to hear, you know, Pastor James come and slay it. Um, John chapter 2, we're super excited about it. Something else, the tendency might be, well, you know, I'm going I'm to zone out. I'm going to step aside. You know, it wasn't, I, I had plans for missional family and all those things. Um, but I, I'd encourage you, not because I'm, I'm speaking, because I have no authority. But God's word does. And whenever we come to it, we need to come to it with an awe, a beholding as we've been talking about here. And it's extraordinary. 40 plus, 40 plus human authors, right, aided in writing the scriptures, but it is all God-breathed, amen? And it is profitable for teaching and correcting in righteousness. So let's read Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 19 together. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's pray together. Lord, what a song we just sang, not because of who wrote that song or uh, because it has fancy lyrics, but because all of it is pointing to your holiness, to your greatness. Um, Lord, you are holy forever, forever and ever. And may that be true, not just in reality, it is true. It may be true in our lives and how we live. Lord, that we live in worship to you. And I pray now that as we come to your scriptures, may we come with open hearts, open minds, open hands, ready to receive what you have for us today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 115 AD. And there was an 86-year-old man sitting up in his house about to have dinner, and all of a sudden, Roman soldiers came knocking at his door. 
If you think about it, the, the scene is rather humorous. You have a seriously old man uh, who's, who's, who's about to be arrested by Roman soldiers. What could he have done? Right? What, what, what could he have done? Polycarp, uh, he, he was well known for speaking against the Roman government and challenging the principles of the Roman Empire. He was, he was among the apostolic fathers of the day. Um, and, and really, without, without the apostolic fathers, it was a time in church history where the church was susceptible to a lot of different heresies, a lot of different people saying wrong things about who God is. And so because of these apostolic fathers, Polycarp included, the church went through this time, uh, brought the gospel through this time unscathed. Uh, of course, God had his hand over all of it, but God used Polycarp in this. And Polycarp also, he challenged Caesar uh, several times and demanded that Christians be treated more justly. Uh, he spent his years preaching the gospel, encouraging churches. And, th- and this was the ministry of Polycarp during an age of persecution. This is what his life was all about. And it would have been an understatement to say that Polycarp lived a big life for God. But the question is why? Why, why, why live all out to the point where 86 years old, you get arrested because of all the things you've done? And I think the answer we're going to find in a letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi, uh, Polycarp answered this question. And, here, and, here's, and, and here's essentially the content of the letter. But the church asked Polycarp, he said, well, why don't you just deny your affiliation with the church? Just, just allow yourself to be free from all this. Right, this was the Philippi, Philippi's concern with Polycarp. Just, just denounce the church. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be fine. And Polycarp responds like this. I have followed Christ my whole life, and he has done me no wrong. How can I betray my Savior and my King? You see, Polycarp did big things for Christ because he had a big view of who Christ is. And Christ in application, not just in reality, which it is true, but in application was Lord over his life. And Paul's argument in our text is clear. Christ is supreme above all else. But the question should be running through our minds as we read through his arguments here in Colossians chapter 1. Is he supreme in my heart? Is he supreme in my life? That is, is Christ above all else in my life? Uh, In the Colossian church, there was this heresy that crept in. Uh, It it was Gnosticism. And in in this heresy, it taught that there was a certain knowledge that someone needed outside of faith in Christ in order to receive salvation. So it was Jesus plus something equals salvation. It wasn't just about having faith in Jesus. But not only that, but in Gnosticism, it also believed that the body was bad. So the idea that, that Jesus or God would become flesh, right, was not, they weren't down with this. They weren't about it. They rejected it. So in Gnosticism, it discredited the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ as well. And Gnosticism was creeping into the Colossian church. So Paul here in, in Colossians chapter 1 is being very intentional when he's, when he's talking about the supremacy of Christ, that he's above all else, that he's above creation, he's above the church, because that's what has crept into um, the Colossian church of the day. 
And, and this heresy, it really attacked the foundation of the gospel because it attacked the character of Jesus and who he is. And though Gnosticism is not necessarily, at least in that form, among us today in the church, uh, there are remnants of it. Um, my grandmother, who, who, who is not well um, physically, is a Jehovah's Witness uh, who do not believe that Jesus is God. Uh, he's an angel. He's a created being. Um, if you do find time to pray, please pray for her. And there are similar sentiments in Mormonism about the deity of Christ and progressive Christianity, which attacks the deity of who Jesus is. He's just a moral teacher, just a good man. Uh, but he's not the only way to heaven. Right? And this would be sort of the, the remnants of Gnostic teaching that we might see here today. And before, before you can even consider uh, the, the cults of today, I think we should consider our own hearts. Because if Jesus is God, if he's the only way to salvation, if we declare his lordship in our lives, then this is not just a matter of belief, but it's a matter of daily practice. It should be applied in our life, that he is lord over all. He must be first in our life, our daily meditation, our daily goal. And, and so in the same way, Paul writes to the Colossian church, declaring the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus Christ to them. When they're tempted to withhold honor from Christ, he's reminding them that he deserves all the honor you can give. And so Paul's argument is such. He is supreme over everything. Christ is supreme over all things because first he is supreme over creation and second he's supreme over the church. So first he's supreme over creation because he made it and he sustains it. And we see that here in the Christ hymn at the beginning. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. It's a consistent teaching in the scriptures uh, that God is invisible. John chapter 5, verse 37, uh, it says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. That's, um, that's John chapter 5. And the first Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God says, You cannot see my face. However, Jesus here is the image of the invisible God. And the term image here is icon in the Greek. It means exact representation, the exact representation of God. So Paul is saying here that what was once invisible is now visible in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says to Philip in John chapter 14, have I not been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Jesus is God visible. John, John starts his gospel. Of course, we've, we've been studying this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John chapter 8, verse 58 Jesus says to the Pharisees, they're curious about how such a young person could say, I knew 
who Abraham was. You know, he's, he's barely 30. How can he know who Abraham was? And then Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. John finishes his gospel with the scene of, of Thomas finally seeing Jesus for who he is. He, he feels the wounds of Jesus and he asserts, my Lord and my God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation. That's the same word, that icon, the exact, or at least the, the, the base of it. The exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. He is the image of God. And really, Jesus, being anything less than divine, is against the teachings of Scripture and against the teachings of Jesus himself. He is the divine Son of God. And Paul continues here. It says, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Uh, and this has really been abused by all sorts of cults, Jehovah's Witnesses being one of them. Uh, they see the term firstborn and they assume time sequence. Uh, but if you look in Scripture and you allow Scripture to interpret itself, you'll find something else uh, quite different. Uh, it says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, Israel is not the first nation to ever be born. So it has to mean something else. And, and here, it means it conveys significance rather than time, order, sequence. Israel is supreme in importance and significance over the other nations of the world. Psalm chapter 89, verse 27 says this. God says of David, he's talking about David the king, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the king's of the earth. Uh, David, not the first order among his brothers. In fact, he's the youngest. Uh, and, and the second half of the verse really gives the answer to what firstborn means. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That is, David is exalted above the kings of the earth. And so, so we can see, based on these scriptures and, and the context that Paul writes in, uh, that the supremacy of Christ here, that Paul is asserting uh, that the, the exalted status of Christ, not the order. He's not the first created being. He is exalted above all other created beings. He is exalted above creation. And he also says here, for by him all things were created. By him all things were created. He is supreme and above all creation because he created it. Uh, not only did Christ create the physical world, but also the spiritual world as well. He put leaders in place and, and, and is supreme over the most powerful and prominent rulers of the world. He created them. All things were created through him, and then it says, for him. So not only were all things created through Christ, meaning that he is the source of all things, but all things were created for Christ, meaning he is the purpose of all things. And really, you could insert your name in all things. Um, I'll use my daughter. Leah Jane Miller was created through Christ and for Christ. She was made by him, but she was also made for him. All of her purpose, every single breath she takes is to be for, for God. And the world wants us to believe that 
their riches, pleasures, self-gain, these things that they promise lasting satisfaction. Uh, But the truth is we're not made for those things. Uh, We were made for Christ. We were made to glorify Christ in all that we do. And because we were made for Christ, when he's at the center of all things, there is no better place to be because that was why we were made. We were made for the glory of Christ. And he continues here. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, we've, been, we've been in a series together outside of the John series. Um, we're, we're going to be going through different promises of the Lord. So we went through a devotional together. We're going through a devotional together, fasting together throughout the year once a month, uh, seven days at two different times. But we're going through the promises of God in the scriptures um, one of them that, that have they, has, it come up yet? has it come up yet? He sustains, I should remember. He sustains, I wrote it. He sustains, uh, he sustains us. Was that day five? Hey, hey. Thank you, Kayleen. Day five, he sustains us. Um, so although the, the entirety of this sermon is not about a promise of God, uh, we are going to find that here. Um, because am I supposed to tell people I wrote it? I wrote it. All right. In him, all things hold together. Christ is eternal, and we see that here. He's before all things. And it says that he's holding all things together since the beginning of time. So not only did Christ create all things, and all things are for the purpose of Christ, but he's continually holding all things. And remember, all things, you you could substitute your name, holding all things together. He's sustaining all things. And this is really a beautiful and humbling reality because there is not a second that goes by that we can rightfully say, I did this or I did that without the strength of Christ. He's holding you together. When you rise in the morning, he sustains you through the night. As you you commute to work or walk to, to class or to work, he provided the means. If things aren't going well and tragedy comes, he's still putting air in your lungs and is present with you in hard times. There's not a minute that goes by that we can rightfully say, I did this apart from the grace or love of Jesus Christ. He's holding you together. Hour by hour, the reason that we don't fly apart into a billion fragments and then vanish is because Christ is holding you together. And this is true of everything in the universe, everything that man has ever made, every body of every man and woman and child and every mountain and ocean and cloud and supernova, all who would cease to be if Christ did, did not hold them together. May we never allow pride and arrogance characterize our lives because we know that without Christ, we are nothing and can do nothing. In every success of life, if we pass a class that was difficult, if we complete an assignment, if we get a new job, if we get a pay raise, instead of considering yourself as better as the other, these things should bring us to our needs in gratitude to Jesus Christ. And in every failure and tragedy, we should be reminded that Jesus is active in holding us together. He is with us and truly knows how we feel. He can empathize with us and help us during the dark times of life. He is active in holding us together. He sustains us, amen? That's the first argument that Paul gives to us here, that Christ is supreme over Creation First, because he's divine, 
Second, because he created it. He's the creator. And thirdly, because he sustains his creation. Those are subpoints that are not up on the screen. So you have to memorize it as I speak it. Paul is supreme over creation. Secondly here, Paul says that Christ is supreme over the body, the church. Two brief sub points. He is, he is the foundation of the church and he is the purpose of the church. Foundation and purpose. But Christ is supreme over the church. It says here that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And the body, you'll recognize, elsewhere in the scriptures, also refers to uh, the church, uh, meaning the people of God. And that there are individual parts that rely on one another to live and function. Um, However, in this passage, Jesus Christ is said to be the head of the body. As if to suggest that if the head is cut off from the body, it will die. Jesus is the foundation on which the church stands. Therefore, if Jesus is not preached, if he is not worshipped, if he is not central in the church, it will be spiritually dead. Uh, One prominent pastor, theologian, said it like this. Without a head, it's dead. But more than one head makes it a monster. Sometimes we may be tempted to elevate leaders in the church to a headship they do not belong. We should be grateful and respect our church leaders, but at the end of the day, they and all of us are merely tools pointing to the head of the church, who is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And he continues and he says, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And again, Paul Paul uses this firstborn term and we know what it means now. Praise the Lord. And it signifies supremacy, right? He's being elevated above all other resurrections. And and we know that he's not the first to be resurrected, um, but, but he is the first to be resurrected and stay resurrected, His his resurrection is supreme over all others. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he died again. Christ rose from the dead and lives forevermore. Christ's resurrection makes and initiates our spiritual resurrection in him. And really, the resurrection is, is the core doctrine of the Christian faith and of the church. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church and the purpose of the church, right? If, if you believe in the resurrection and what it is, uh, then that is the purpose of your life, to, to preach it, to speak it, to praise him for it, that, that it's constantly on your lips because of what it means that he rose, what that means for you, the benefits for your life. And really, it should character joy, praise, um, lifting him up, te- speaking your testimony to others, that should be a, a primary characteristic of our life. And when it is, other people notice. Um, it is evangelistic. I, this illustration, 85% chance of failure. Going to do it anyway. Um, I, I used to teach Bible classes in an international school down in Pohang. Um, and in my Bible class, I was, I was a master of pedagogy. So I um, used, to, used to set up trash cans and um, roll up pieces of, of trash and then have lines on the floor. And I you know, would ask questions about trivia, Bible things that we've been studying in the class, and then have them shoot the shot. You know? 
And so one point was super close, two points a little further, three points a little further, six points was on the other corner of the room. So all you teachers, listen up. This is how you do it. Um, so six points on the other side of the room was, was, was the shot. And everyone knew that we used to have the six-point shot. And you know, you know, you know how, how teens are. They'll, nobody wants to shoot the shot because they know they're going to miss. But then once you say that there's a six-point shot, everybody's like, oh, shoot the shot. You know, shoot the shot. And they're like, no, I don't want to shoot the shot. Oh, and then they end up shooting the shot. So anyways, nobody makes a shot until one day this guy named Dong-Uk, uh, he, he went back there, uh, just no hesitation, boom, made the shot. The room, and I told them beforehand, I said, if he makes this shot, everybody stay calm. They're having tests all throughout this floor. Please don't scream, don't yell. There was nothing I could do that day. Um, he nailed that shot. People were doing laps. Um, I was trying to keep the door closed. People were running in the hallway. That is not an exaggeration. Um, I knew for a fact I was going to be fired. Now I work at Freedom Village Church. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, it was, it was chaos. Um, but what I found is students, right after that class, they came in. They didn't ask why people were running around. They came in and said, who made the shot? <laughs> who made the shot? I said, oh, it was Dungu. He made the shot. They heard the cheers. They heard the joy. They heard the laughter. They heard the running. And they were curious about what was going on. I think that's true of our lives as well. When we are responding with joy, responding with praise because of what Christ has done for us, people are going to start asking questions. What's up with the joy? In all circumstances? What's up with the praise right now? It matters. He is the purpose of the church, and he's the purpose of our lives as well. I'm going to finish with a point on the sufficiency of Christ, because I think this is how Paul finishes this segment here. He says here in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 19, different version up on the screen. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in this text, really, Paul, Paul is saying Christ is worthy of being exalted because he is sufficient. And this is how he closes this Christ hymn. Uh, he said that the fullness of God dwells in him. And in verse 20, he adds, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So essentially, Paul is saying Christ is sufficient for salvation and we don't need anything else. Christ is enough because he is fully God. And to those in Colossae that accepted the Gnostic heresy, to them, uh, Jesus was not enough, if I've, as I've already mentioned. The Colossian her heresy accepted Jesus as one of many emanations of God, but he wasn't enough for salvation alone. And Paul confronted this heresy head on, specifically when he said that Christ is the fullness of God. Uh, one, commentator, one commentator puts it this way when referring to the word fullness uh, in, in Paul's statement here. It's not going to be up on the screen, but please listen well. Paul's use of the word fullness here is an intentional slap at the Gnostics, who use the same word, the same word fullness, pleroma, to denote the totality of all the thousands of divines and emanations or lesser gods. But Paul said, no way. Jesus is not one of the lesser gods of the fullness. He is the fullness. 
Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says it even more explicitly for or even more explicitly for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and fullness means the totality of divine power and attributes are in Christ the whole fullness the full fullness Jesus Christ is the exhaustion of God Moreover, the fullness is said to live in him. It's not temporary. It was, it is, and it's there to stay. And the temptations that attacked the church back then, I think, could be similar to those today. Um, that Christ is a good man. He's a prophet. He's an angel. He's anything and everything other than what he said he was. And the world says that Christ is good, but he's not enough, that he's not sufficient but we find here in our text that Christ is fully Lord. He is the only way to the Father. And Paul is saying that Christ is fully sufficient. He's all we need. There's no other revelation or emanation that we're waiting for. Jesus was God himself, and he was enough to save us. Therefore, we should exalt him because he is preeminent. He is sufficient. So just an, an overview for you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. We see that Christ is supreme over creation because he made it and because he sustains it. And we see that Christ is supreme over the church because he is its foundation and he's its purpose. And what does that mean for our life? Uh, it's quite simple. Knowing that Christ is supreme, we can trust him as our Savior. He, prayed the, he paid the price for our sins through his sacrifice and resurrection. We can worship him as our God. He created all things and rules in heaven. And we can serve him as our Lord. His power, authority, holiness, and love are worthy of all our worship and eternal devotion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up today.